guys. Um, if you're visiting us this, uh, this morning, uh, again, we hope you feel warmly, warmly welcomed. Uh, we're a new church plant. We're young at this, so we're still taking baby steps, um, but Jesus is doing great things among us, and so we're, we're excited. We're thankful. We're grateful uh, for what he's doing, and we're especially grateful, too, for, for uh, just the fact that you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 12. Uh, we'll be spending the majority of our time in the book of Nehemiah. Because this morning we're continuing this sermon series that we began uh, really the, the week after Easter. Easter was our first service, sort of our soft launch as a church plant. And we've been in this Old Testament book of Nehemiah since then. And we have this tendency to think, like with Old Testament books, that they can be kind of stale and boring, right? Like an Old Testament book like, like Nehemiah. But one of the things that we've seen is, as we've, as we've dug into the text, into this book, we've seen beautiful and amazing things come out of it, haven't we? Uh, we've been able to draw some clear parallels to Nehemiah's mission uh, in rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and our mission in building another local church for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah, Nehemiah uh, and his crew, uh, what they've been doing since the beginning, they've been on quite this journey throughout the book, haven't they? They've been on quite this journey since they started this whole thing. I mean, the story of Nehemiah started with uh, this guy, Nehemiah, uh, a cupbearer for the king of Persia. And God gives this guy, this ordinary guy, Nehemiah, this sort of burning desire. He gives Nehemiah a burning desire, this sort of spiritual burden to go back to God's city, to go back to Jerusalem, which has been in ruins for over 140 years. And God wants this ordinary guy named Nehemiah to do this extraordinary work of leading God's people to rebuild and refortify and re-strengthen God's city. And so, and the whole reason that Nehemiah does this is really so that God's people can not only once again be together, like geographically, but so they could worship together too. I mean, really, there's been no worship in God's city for over a century. And Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the city of this great king. It was God's city. And so for that city to be destroyed, to have its walls in ruins and broken down, was more than just a civic or political issue. It was this picture of their broken relationship that they had with their God. And so the journey in Nehemiah, it started with prayer. Right? Nehemiah has this burden. He started, he dropped to his knees. He started in prayer and then when planning prayerfully. Then he gathered the people together. And then we saw he met opposition, right? Opposition from the outside, discord from the inside, division. But eventually the walls are rebuilt, the gates are set, and the people of God are dusting off their Bibles and worshiping God again as one unified people. And that's what we're in the middle of right now in Nehemiah chapter 12. Like These are wonderful days in the history of God's people. Revival had broken out. The people of God that were once spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. They're loving the word of God. They're opening it. They're, they're worshiping God. They're together uh, as a people again. They weren't just geographically restored to the city, but they were spiritually restored to their God. 
And we've seen throughout each chapter that through their, the prayers that they prayed and as the people gathered and the drama that they dealt with inside and outside, that there's this, this buildup, this joyful anticipation of a renewed start in the city. And that's what's happened. The word of God is again at the center of their community. The temple worship and sacrifices are back and the people are pouring uh, family after family like back into the city. And so to mark this special moment, sort of the climax that we've all been waiting for throughout this book, to mark this special moment, to mark this occasion of the sovereign and gracious work of their God and how he sort of restored them, not only to his city, but to himself. To mark this occasion, the people now gather to celebrate. They gather to have this citywide worship service. They gather to celebrate the dedication of the city and its walls. It's a dedication. It's kind of like like my wife and I, when we moved into our new home uh, a little over a year ago, like we we prayed together and we we kind of like dedicated to the Lord our, our new home, right? We said we want this house belongs to the Lord. This is a gift from him and we want it to be used for his purposes, for his mission and for his glory. That's what these people are doing in Nehemiah chapter 12. They've gathered to celebrate, to worship, and to ultimately dedicate the city and its walls uh, to the Lord. This great climax in Nehemiah. And so they have this citywide worship and dedication service, and these are exciting and joyful days. And this celebration, this party, this worship service that they're having, that's what we're going to unpack this morning in Nehemiah chapter 12. And so in our, in our text, we're going to look at their worship and dedication service. And there's three things to learn from this passage that we can apply to ourselves and our church today. Three things, three lessons on worship from Nehemiah 12 based on their example. And I'll give you the three things right off the bat. Three things regarding worship is that worship, first of all, needs to be pure. Secondly, worship needs to be joyful. And thirdly, Worship needs to be intentional. So worship is pure, joyful, and intentional. Now, before we sort of dig into that first point, I want to do sort of like some preliminary work on the doctrine of worship. Like, what does it mean when we talk about worship, when we talk about celebration? When we talk about worship, there are two things that I want you to consider by way of preface. The first is that worship is not something that only Christian people do. It's something that all people do. Worship is not something that just Christian people do. It's something that all people do. Now, in one sense, like worship is something that Christians uniquely do, right? Like together on Sundays, like this morning on the Lord's Day, where we gather for worship and for singing and reading the Bible together. But so on the one hand, like worship is something that Christians uniquely do, but it's actually bigger and more broader than that. You see, worship is something that both Christians... And non-Christians do. It's something that spiritual and non-spiritual people do. Religious and irreligious. And so to explain, like, one, one way that we got to look at worship is by saying, you know, worship is basically like the, th- the thing that we worship is whatever it is that motivates us. 
Whatever it is that motivates us, that get, makes us feel uh, that is like significant, the, the, like a very center, the thing that, that determines what we value, who we are, uh, our behavior, our desires, the thing that motivates us, our deepest desires, longings, and hopes, the thing that determines our identity, our value, and being, like that's what we worship. And we're all worshipers. We're all inclined to worship because we were made for worship. We were made to worship. We were made to delight in something bigger than us. The problem is that most of us find, like, we turn to the wrong things when we, in our impulse to worship. David Foster Wallace, he's this postmodern novelist, uh, passed away a few years ago. He, he's got this, this quote, this, this famous quote from one of the speeches he gave at, uh, at a university. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, as like true atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And in his speech, he gives these examples. He says, look, if you worship like money and things, then you'll always feel like you never have enough stuff. You never have enough in your bank account. If you, because that's the thing that determines your value, your sense of identity and being. If you worship your body, if you worship beauty, then like you'll always feel ugly. You'll always feel like not pretty enough. If you worship power, then you'll always try to control others and you'll never feel like you're in a position of enough power. You see, we all worship because we're all made to worship. We just tend to choose the wrong things to worship. And as one person said, we all have this sort of like God-shaped hole in our hearts that we're just trying to fill. We're just turning to the wrong places. And so that's the first, first thing is by way of preface to understand is that everybody worships, right? Not just Christians, everybody worships. So the second thing is that worship is something that we do all the time. Worship is something that we do all the time and that we should do all the time as Christians. Like there's this debate among church-going people where, you know, there's this conversation of, you know, is worship what we call our Sunday gatherings, like, like what we're doing right now, or is it this lifestyle, right? But Scripture says it's both, right? Whatever time it is, whatever day it is, wherever you go, whatever you're doing, you should do it in a way that glorifies God. You see... Plato introduced this sort, and one of the things that, that, that he taught that's kind of infested like Western thinking is this, this division between the, the secular and the spiritual. And he says, look, we all have our secular lives over here and our spiritual lives over here. That's a faulty way of thinking because really like we're spiritual beings. And really those two things should be integrated. And so for context, like for Nehemiah chapter 12, I want us to have those things in mind because through this grid of worship, what's basically happened is that in the pages leading up to chapter 12, the people that were once worshiping themselves and worshiping false gods like money, sex, and power, along with the rest of the world, they were worshiping money, sex, and power. But now, before Nehemiah chapter 12, they're living for God's glory and they're dedicating themselves to him. Their worship has been inverted from worshiping false gods to worshiping the true God. And so now they've dedicated themselves to God. They've dedicated their hearts, their lives, their families, their sin. They've given it all to God. And he's forgiven them, and they're living out now of a restored relationship with him. Right? That's why these are good days. 
And so the city is rebuilt, the walls are built, are up, the gates are set, and they're dedicating the wall, and then they have this huge worship service, true worship, worship of the true one and living God. And now let's go into our text. First, we want to see that worship is pure. That's the first thing we learn from this passage. Worship is pure. And we get that from the first four verses. Read it with me. Starting in verse 27. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers have built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So look, one thing is clear from this passage, right? They're gathered, and they are going to worship. They're going to delight in God. They're going to worship. They're going to celebrate, and they are going big, right? Like, they're gathering all the singers from all around the region. Verse 28 says, they called the sons of the singers, which uh, in the Hebrew, like, that's actually one word. And what that means back then isn't... uh, like basically the, the sons, like the male uh, offspring of all the singers, like that's not what that means. But when you see sons of singers, that's basically their way of saying, look, the entire singer crew, right? Like everyone who has the badge of singer on their, on their shoulder, like that's who they're calling. You see, in the New Testament, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement, right? Like that doesn't mean that he's the son of encouragement, like the offspring of encouragement, that means he comes from a group of people that are just encouragers, right? And that's what the point that's getting across here. It says that they called all the sons of singers. So they're reaching and they're putting this casting call across the land. All the singers come to Jerusalem. There's entire villages, we learn from this passage, entire villages were built just for singers, And the leaders behind this celebration, this big worship service, they want to go big. So they sent out a call to invite all the singers in all the singer villages, right? That's a lot of singers. And so notice here, I want you to see that there's no actually, there's no order or there's no command to celebrate and worship here. You see, in previous chapters, before they had a worship service similar to this, it was because they read it in the word of God and they're like, oh, like, Dang, we got to worship, right? Like we need, we need to do this, we need to do that. And so then they'd have this service. But here, here there's no order or command to celebrate and worship. They just did it. You see, and that's because they're about to dedicate this wall. They're about to dedicate this wall that God helped them build despite 141 years of destruction, despite political odds being stacked against them, despite attacks coming from the outside, division coming from the inside, God was faithful. And so there's no command for them, no order for them to be joyful and celebrate. They just wanted to. It was like, it's just an overflow of their hearts. It's like if you put a wrapped present in front of a small kid with their name on it, you don't have him to to tell him to be excited about that, right? He's just going to be excited. He's going to smile. He's going to be busting with joy. In the same way, like you don't have to tell the people who are dedicating this wall to be excited. 
They're basking in the joy of God's faithfulness. And this was just their natural response to have a citywide worship celebration. I want you to notice something. In verse 27, it says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places. So the leaders here of this worship service, they sought the Levites in all their places. And, you know, we got to ask ourselves, why did they do that? Why did they seek the Levites? What were the Levites supposed to do? And we see uh, in the, the answer in the rest of verse 27. It says, so to celebrate the dedication, but also down in verse 30, it says that the priests and the Levites purified themselves, purified the people, and purified the gates and the wall. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> What does this mean when it, say, when it says that they purify themselves, the people, and the wall? Like, did this group of Levites just go around cleaning everything? Like, did they haul around these, like, ancient alabaster jars of, like, Purell, try to sanitize everyone for, like, the big day of celebration? Like, what was this whole purification thing about? But the clue for us is in the fact that the people doing the work here, the people that they're calling are the Levites. And if you know anything about the Levites, like in the Old Testament, the Levites are basically the clergy of their day. And so they're basically like the Levites are the resident theologians, the resident pastors and priests in Jerusalem. And the Levites' primary role, really their only role, was to help in overseeing and administering temple worship. In other words, this purification was not about clean, making sure that things were physically th- cleaned, but it was more about preparing the people to come into the presence of their holy and awesome God. That's what they were doing. See, worship needs to be pure. We need to be prepared to come into the presence of our holy and awesome God. You see, it's not clear from this passage, this specific passage, what exactly the purifying involved. But we know from other scriptures in the Old Testament that, you know, it could have involved like washing or fasting or sacrifices. And we don't know the specific practice that they did in this chapter, but we do know the point. You see, the point was to prepare everything and everyone in the holy city to come into the presence of the Lord. That's what Levites did. You see, that's why the Levites were summoned, because the people wanted the city, they wanted themselves to come into the presence of their holy and awesome God. That's what all this purification talk is all about. Now, what does that mean for us today? You see, the, tent, the intent of all the covenant purification ceremonies in the Old Testament, like the washing, the sacrifices, and so on, the purpose of all that was to point forward and to prefigure, to point toward Jesus. You see, the, all the Old Testament covenant purification ceremonies was to prefigure the perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the religious rituals that were given by God to the Levites, like washing their clothes and sacrificing goats, all of those religious rituals given by God to his people, to the Levites under the old covenant, was not because God loves to watch his people jump through religious hoops. (laughs) The purpose of all those rituals was because all these things related to temple worship and prepared God's people to receive God's 
son. So the purification washing part of the ceremony, again, we don't know specifically that that's what they did, but like in the Old Testament, whenever there was purification washing in the ceremony, that taught them that this great God of ours, this holy and perfect God in all his attributes, who's utterly clean and utterly pure in both his character and his nature, we need to be cleansed before we enter his presence. That's what the purification washing taught them. Purification sacrifices, like the goats, right? Like the goats in the Old Testament, the goat sacrifices taught them another Jesus-centered truth. You know, one goat would get drained of its blood, and the other one gets prayed over by a Levitical priest, and all the sins of Israel go on that goat and is released into the wild, and they call it a scapegoat. Like, that's why we, we use that word. That's where that term comes from. You see, the end goal... The final purpose of all these Levitical laws on purification were always to point forward to Jesus, was to prepare God's people for God's Son, to point to Jesus, God in the flesh, who would have his own blood drained and his own body carried away with the sins of the world. That's why we call him the Lamb of God. You see, again, we don't know exactly which purification ceremonies took place on this day of worship in Nehemiah 12. But one thing we do know is that the point of all purification ceremonies was to always point God's people forward to Jesus. And see, now, under the new covenant, we get to look back to Jesus. We get to look around in the present day in the church at Jesus and his work today. You see, Nehemiah 12 tells us that when we worship We need pure worship. That means God's first concern is not our performance. It's not our production. It's not even our musicianship in musical worship. God's first concern is our purification. Worshipers must come to God with a pure heart, which is another way of saying that they must come through faith in Jesus. Worshipers must come now through faith in Jesus. You see, personal worship in our lives can be weak. Our personal worship can be weak when our hearts are cold and when our hearts are hard, when they haven't been warmed by the fire of Jesus and his gospel, right? Have you guys ever felt that way to where you just feel like your worship is cold and hard, like it almost feels forced, right? Like you come into church on Sunday and you feel like, man, it's time to worship, so I guess I got to crank it up, right? But wherever there is true life in Jesus where you have a pure heart because of what he's done for you, living a life you could never live, dying a death in your place and rising from the grave so that you can share in his victory over Satan's sin and death. You see, whenever you have that, when you believe in that, and when you have this true life in Jesus and this fire for the glory of God to be worked out in your life, this fire that's been stoked, then heartfelt praise and worship just becomes, it becomes natural. It just, it just flows. You see, that's why worship needs to be pure. That's why the Levites were called in Nehemiah 12. And that's why we need Jesus, the pure heart that comes from faith in Jesus today is because, um, like God doesn't want us to be like, to feel like all contrived in our worship. He doesn't want us to feel like we have to crank it up. He wants us to abide in Jesus to sit on the gospel, to meditate on the word, to let the fire of the Spirit stoke our hearts in praise to God, to make our worship pure. 
Look, the single greatest contribution that you make to worship on Sunday mornings in this place is not your voice. Trust me, for some of you guys, it's not your voice. (laughs) Your greatest contribution and personal worship is the worship of Jesus in your everyday own personal life. Do you have a pure heart before your God? Have you felt the warmth of the fire of the gospel of Jesus? That's what pure worship comes from. Has Jesus purified your heart? Has he called you? Has he beckoned you? Has he warmed your soul? You see, New Testament Christians don't need purification ceremonies anymore because we have Jesus. We have the one that the purification ceremonies pointed to. They didn't know that, but we do because we have the whole book, right? They just had the first five books, but we've got the whole collection. We know that it all points forward to Jesus. He's all that we need, and so now we can enjoy the freedom of knowing him, enjoying him, and we bring that joy to worship. We bring that joy to worship in our everyday life, 24-7, and also here on Sunday morning when we come to worship him with God's people on the Lord's day. You see, that's what pure worship is. Pure worship happens through faith in Jesus. It's Jesus-driven, it's Jesus-centered, and it's Jesus-exalting worship. That's what pure worship is. And so first we've seen that worship is pure. Second point, we see now that worship is joyful. Read verse 31 with me. It says, Then I, this is Nehemiah speaking, Then I, Nehemiah, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And we'll we'll stop right there. Like, can you just imagine, imagine this scene, all right? Nehemiah, he's bringing all the leaders in the city up onto this, up onto the wall that they just built. And he appoints these two great choirs and he gives thanks to them. So there are these two massive choirs that have been recruited by Nehemiah. And these choirs, they're about to go marching on, out on the walls. They're about to go marching on the walls out there in public on top of the city walls. It's just this beautiful scene, right? You almost picture like this parade of people out in public, like worshiping, like gathering, like there's no one on the walls. And all of a sudden, these great choirs are like marching on the walls, circling the city. For me, I imagine like, have you guys ever seen those like flash mob videos on YouTube? If you guys, how many guys know what a flash mob is? So flash mobs are like amazing, right? Like basically, like you have this public place. It's usually for a flash mob to work perfectly, like it needs to be the most unassuming place, right? So typically flash mobs happen in like a food court or like a mall, right? And what happens is you've got this group of people that come in that are like all covert, like they're they're all part of like, um, like some, I don't know, like choir group. I'm sure that there's a better name for it, but they're part of some like massive choir group, right? And like they just go all covert into like some, some food court or like some mall. And then usually they set up some hidden cameras, right? And then it's because they want to throw it up on YouTube later. And then they, especially you see these all the time on YouTube, like around Christmas time, because what happens is like you'll have these like choirs of like 150 to 300 people like walking around the mall, all gathering in the food court, like pretending that they're just like your average shopper or your average person like eating at the food court. And all of a sudden, one of them will stand up on a chair and start belting out like, 
joy to the world or something like that, right? And then at first, everyone kind of looks like, what is this crazy person doing? But then this other person joins in, and then this other person joins in, and then like throughout like the, this video, you see like this, this entire choir just comes out of nowhere in this public place, and they're all singing joy to the world. And everyone's got their phones out, and they're all excited because they're like, this is amazing. Like, we didn't expect this, right? Like, that's the kind of scene that this is. That's the kind of scene that this is. Totally unexpected. People are just doing their, this is a, this is, uh, this wasn't like a, a, a commanded worship service. This is something that the leaders decided to do. They gathered the people. It says that Nehemiah appointed two great choirs to go up onto the city walls. This massive choir marching on the wall, circling the city. It's highly organized. Everyone's put in their places. They're all singing their hearts out, just going bananas on these psalms, right? Singing in perfect harmony. And these giant, massive choirs and marching bands, like, are just circling the city in the public, in the open square. And everyone's just going nuts. You see, that's what this worship service looked like. That's what was going on when Nehemiah says he brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and he appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. They were singing psalms of thanksgiving. Read the rest of uh, 31 with me and, and, and on to the next few verses. He says that one of these choirs went to the south on the wall to the Dung Gate, uh, which sounds like it's not a fun part of town. Um, and then verse 32, and after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Aphath, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mei, Nathanael, uh, Judah, and Hanani, with the music, musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. And at the fountain gate, they went straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir, the second great choir of those who gave thanks, went to the north. And I, Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, which sounds terrifying, uh, over to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and by the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. We'll stop right there. See, so here's the scene. You've got Pastor Ezra marching south with one giant worship team. You've got Governor Nehemiah proceeding the other way with another large group. And they are all marching. They're all marching. They're all singing. They're all worshiping right on top of this wall that they just built. They're worshiping on top of the wall that God just built through them. These are happy days in the in the, for the people of God. They're circling the city of God. Like, can you just picture the joy? This wall was in ruins for 141 years. And now it's, it's res- resurrected, it's rebuilt, and you just got to picture it. Like, as I mentioned, all these gates, the dung gate, the fountain gate, the fish gate, the sheep gate. Like, for them, for the people, like, this would have brought back these fresh memories 
of building and laboring and praying for these walls. The walls were in ruins for 141 years, and it took them 52 days, 52 days to rebuild them. And so as they're mentioning each of the gates, as Nehemiah is mentioning all the gates that they're walking by, like for them, this would have brought back these fresh memories, these market fresh memories of God's faithful promises. You see, just days earlier, just several days earlier, just a few dozen days earlier, Nehemiah was preparing the people for the work of rebuilding. Before they started on the wall, he was preparing them. And you remember those guys, Tobiah and, Sam, or, and Sambalat? Remember Sambalat and Tobiah, those like total haters, right? Like Tobiah was mocking them, saying, like from the outside, saying, look, like this wall would tumble down if a fox jumped on it, which apparently back then is like a huge burn. Like, <laughs> oh man, like that wall can't even handle a fox, right? But now on this day, in Nehemiah chapter 12, they have entire choirs. They've got a parade of people up on that wall. How you like us now, right? <laughs> the Lord's faithful hand in the story of God's people. That's what's happening. The Lord's faithful hand in the story of God's people. And so worship erupted. Worship erupted. Their hearts were filled with joy. Verse 40, read it with me. It says, Now both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I, Nehemiah, and half the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. God made them rejoice with great joy. See, not only did their joy come from knowing God, but it came from them. He's the source of their joy. Read the rest of the verse with me. It says then that the women and children also rejoiced. And get this, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You see, this is a type of worshipful celebration that didn't need to be worked up. It didn't need to be cranked up. It just needed an opportunity. It needed an opportunity like this, and they break out in song. You see, so many revivals that we see happening in the scripture and throughout church history, <coughs> revivals have always produced like great music. We see that throughout church history. Revivals in church history have produced some of the most timeless hymns that we sing today, even some of the hymns that we're singing this morning. And see, that's what's happened here. Revival broke out. The people are restored. Renewal breaks out into the city and they worship. It's this worshipful celebration and praise that just kind of flows when the heart is full. And that's what's happening here in the city of Jerusalem. Their hearts are full. Quick note here I want us to notice. Notice God delights in music. Our God delights in music. 
I mean, this, this, this passage talks about cymbals, harps, lyres, all kinds of singing from these different choirs and other musical instruments of David, it says. You see, music is one of the ways that we worship. It's one of the ways that we worship that's prescribed by God. You see, the entire book of Psalms, most of us are familiar with Psalms, right? Like when we, when you have, like as a Christian, when you have a bad day, like you tend to turn to the Psalms, right? It's like the biggest book of the Bible. It's right there in the middle. You just open it up in the center and you're in the Psalms. The entire book of Psalms is a worship book. It's a worship hymnal. Jesus sang those songs. And all throughout the Psalms, you've got these phrases like, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing and make melody. I will sing praises among the nations. I will sing of your steadfast love. You see, the Lord loves. He loves when we sing. He loves when we sing. He loves God honoring, God exalting, Christ exalting music. You see, some of us treat music as sort of like the pregame for the real game, right? Like, music's the pregame, the real game's like the sermon, right? Like, some of us treat the sermon as like the main thing that we come to church for. And most of you are like, no, we definitely don't come for the sermons. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, music isn't just preparation for the preaching. It's one of the reasons that we gather to worship. In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul is writing this letter to this church that he loves dearly, the church in Colossae. And he tells them in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, one of the ways that we let the word of Christ dwell in us, one of the ways that God forms us in worship is by singing. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. You see, singing is a crucial part of the worship service. That's why we do a call to worship at the beginning of the service. Um, if you're wondering, like, what, I don't remember doing a call to worship. That's because you're probably not here when we start. But when we do start, like, we have this thing called a call to worship. It's a call to worship from the scriptures that we read where God beckons us to and calls us to worship him. And we're saying now, like, with the call to worship, all right, here's this scripture. Here's this passage. God's calling us to worship. And so now, worship Gathered worship starts for this church family. And then the next thing we do is sing. I want you to notice back in Nehemiah 12, at the end of verse 43, it says, The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Notice it doesn't say their singing was heard far away. It says their joy was heard far away. Like, man, what if the church in South Orange County was known for that, that their joy was heard? This mentor of mine, he's a, 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 he's a pastor. He's like in his mid-90s. Some of you guys know who he is. One day I was like sitting next to him 
in the back of a church service, and he leans over to me, uh, like at, right after the the last worship set, and and this this pastor friend of mine, um, he's like his old wise sage. He's planted like a bunch of churches. He's pastored several churches, uh, and. Uh, I just love hanging out with this guy. He's just like a, a, a vat of wisdom, right? But this pastor friend of mine, he leans over to me after the worship set, and he says, Chris, do you know what is wrong with the songs we sang today? And I'm thinking like, oh, no, right? Like, like Pastor Bill's coming down hard on the worship. He doesn't like the songs that we sing. Like, like he's, and I'm trying to think, like, oh, no, this is a test, right? Like, maybe some song that we sang had a heresy in it. And he's, like, testing me right now, right? Like, do you know what the song is wrong with the songs that we sang today? And so I'm thinking, um, and, and I'm just like, well, Pastor Bill, do you know what's wrong <laughs> with the, the songs we sang today? And his response was, What's wrong with the song is that no one was singing that. No one was singing that. He's like, these are wonderful ancient truths that we're singing about. He's like, do they believe in these truths? Do they believe in the gospel? He's like, I think they do. But if they believe, then they would sing. You see, God wants, loves it when we sing, and he loves it when we sing joyfully. Worship is Joyful. And so we see that first, worship is pure. Second, worship is joyful. Thirdly, and lastly, worship is intentional. Worship is intentional. So the people now, they're full of joy, they're full of celebration, they're full of worship, and it's this climax in the story, right? It's this climax in the story, and how does this climax end, this citywide worship service? How does it end? Here's how it ends. They get intentional and they get organized. Wah, wah, right? <laughs> like this great, huge climax, this citywide worship celebration. And it ends in these last few verses where they, they get down, uh, they take out some diagrams, they get intentional, and they get organized. And it sounds super anticlimactic to an otherwise very climactic passage, right? But look, there's something amazing for us to pick up here that I don't want us to skip over. I'm just going to read the the rest of the verses in the chapter, so um, bear with me, but you'll see what I'm saying. In verse 44, it says, On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, were the directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart... That which was for the sons of Aaron. Now you're like, what is going on? Here's a point I don't want us to miss this morning. Our lives, our lives aren't this daily parade of choirs and marching bands, are they? Our lives are not this daily parade of choirs and marching bands. 
Oh, man, it would be the coolest thing if I could see a flash mob at some point in my day every single day. But that's not real life, right? That's not real life. We don't experience this daily climax of worship and celebration. See, one day we will. One day we will. Like if you belong to Jesus, then one day you will experience that. But in the meantime, like we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Most of our lives are filled with ordinary stuff, filling ordinary days of just faithful walking and worship and obedience to Jesus. You see, and that's what's happening here. That's why we need the intentional ordering of our lives on the day to day to help us abide in Jesus, to stoke the fires of worship through reading the word, spending time with God's people. Make sure we come to gathered worship services. That's what happened at the end of this chapter. You see, they appointed a few people and they ordered their schedules around so that the people could grow and strengthen in the Lord. So that this great, the, all the, 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 the fruit of this great celebration could continue on and that faithful worship could continue for generations to come. That's what these last few verses are about. You see, we need to be intentional in our worship. We need to be intentional in our worship. The opposite of intentional is to be half-hearted. You see, remember back in the first few verses, the people in Jerusalem with Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the leaders, before their giant worship service began, before they recruited all the choirs, uh, what did they do? They consulted the experts, the Levites, remember? For the purification ceremony, they consulted the experts. Before they broke out in worship, they consulted the experts to say, hey, what does the word of God say about like what we need to do before we worship? You see, some of us, we wrongly assume that the more spontaneous you are in worship, the more spiritual you are. Like as if like spontaneity equals like true piety and true spirituality. But good and faithful and consistent worship often comes with our diligent effort on creating regular rhythms of life to help you abide in Jesus, help you dig into the scriptures, plug into his community. This is why Paul in the New Testament, he spills a lot of ink in his epistles and letters explaining how the people of God, which is the church, how the church should order themselves so that the vibrant and lively worship of Jesus can continue, can grow, and can spread to the ends of the earth. That's why he talks a lot about why we need to worship on Sundays, on the Lord's Day. He says, do not neglect this. Do not neglect this. We worship on Sundays because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. Talk about celebration, right? Every time we gather on the Lord's Day on Sundays, we're celebrating the resurrection. That's why worship is pure. It's joyful. It's intentional. That's why we're also intentional in the way that we do the Lord's Supper, take communion every single week. Jesus says, when you're gathered together, do this in remembrance of me. So we're like, okay. Like Jesus knows about our spiritual needs more than we do. And if he says, look, we need to be gathering weekly with God's people, singing, going through the word together, taking the Lord's Supper together in, in some form or fashion, then like, we're going to do that, right? That's why we're doing this thing. That's why we're planning this church. You see, a lot of people these days, especially like young people and like my generation is kind of in this boat, 
We would rather just kind of get together with a few friends over coffee, have these Jesus conversations and listen to like a Jesus-y podcast and call that church, right? But that's not what the church is. Look at the scriptures. That's not what the church is. Look, I'm not like anti-hanging out and anti-having Jesus conversations over coffee. Like, I'm totally pro that, okay? Like, we need more of that, actually. Like, I'd love to see more of that. But when we press into the word, when we search the scriptures, the word of God, what we see on page after page after page is God calls his people to gather together and order their lives around regular worship practices, regular community, regular discipling, sitting under the care of qualified leaders, using their gifts, caring for each other's needs, singing psalms together, and always being driven by and returning to and reading and teaching the word of God. And if we're going to get that, when Paul says, you know, your worship should be done in a regular and ordinary manner, like the, the way that we're going to get that is by intentionally setting aside rather regular rhythms in our personal lives and together as a church for the worship and the growth uh, uh, of us in the gospel. You see, that's how a life of worshipful joy and worshipful sort of celebration is is sort of nurtured. That's how a life of pure and joyful worship is nurtured. It's by using the God-ordained from the scriptures, the God-ordained means of spiritual growth, creating rhythms in our life of rehearsing the gospel Reminding ourselves regularly of gospel truth, regularly saturating our hearts and our minds with the words of God and in the community of faith, the church, so that our hearts can be filled with joy as a fire of the gospel burns. You see, that's why there's all this talk and all this reference here in these last few verses about about David in these last few verses. You see, David was mentioned earlier in the passage when talked about the choir of David, the instruments of David, the stairs in the city and the house of David. In verse 45 and 46, it says, They performed the services of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. You see, here's the point. The people were reminding themselves with all this reference to David. They were reminding themselves that they stood where they stood in the wider scope of redemptive history. They're reminding themselves of where they stood in the wider scope of redemptive history. They're reminding themselves that they stood in the stream of a covenant that God made to David. You see, David wrote most of the songs that they were likely singing from the walls in the Psalms. David was this great king, but he was also a musician, which is like, Every girl's dream. <laughs> but David, you see, these people knew, the people knew that David was a key figure in God's own unfolding plan for, for all of redemptive history. 
And see, they, the people, they were banking on those promises. They're banking on the promises of David, promises that pointed them forward to the King of Kings, Jesus. You see, not long before this worship service in Nehemiah 12, the walls were in ruin. They were broken down. The city was empty, and the word of God wasn't heard. No one was reading the word of God. No one was worshiping. And in the previous chapters leading up to chapter 12, all of that got reversed. All of that got reversed. And now look at how they respond by that reversal. Joy. Worship. Celebration. That's how they respond to God restoring them, renewing them, reviving them. You see, you didn't have to tell the people of God in Jerusalem to celebrate with joy. They just did it because they were God's people gathered in God's presence, formed by God's word, remembering his works, and with their hearts overflowing with thanks. And if that's true for them back then, how much more is that true for us on this side of history? How much more true is that for us on this side of Jesus, on this side of the cross? You see, we worship and we follow Jesus, the God and King who conquered death on the cross where he stood on our place and bore the punishment for our sins. He rose from the grave and shares his victory of resurrection over all evil, over all sin and over death so that we can worship and enjoy him in the fullness of truth, in the fullness of beauty, and worship him in the fullness of joy. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.